All right, let me uh, roll forward. I am uh, beginning uh, last fall, I started on a pretty restrictive diet. I'm not eating too much red meat, really, um, hardly. I'm, I'm, I'm barely, in fact, I'm not at all eating any fried foods. Um, here's what I've learned, uh, that eating a, a low-fat, low-sodium diet is not only heart-healthy, it is nearly impossible, at least without significant effort. My wife has been amazing through all of this, mixing up all kinds of concoctions that the old me would have never eaten. The new me clings to it like life, like it's like a break from my curds and cardboard and whey that I eat most of the time now. But really one thing that's been tough for me is, is snacks. Like what do you do to grab a, a quick lunch, right, that, that could be a little bit low fat? Um, and so what I've been doing is I've had a couple of staples here in my low fat diet. Um, and I know that they might not be good, but they fill me. The, the first is the classic peanut butter and jelly. Mind you, low-fat peanut butter and not much of it. Another staple has been tuna. And I've tried, like some of you people, to be hardcore on the tuna and to eat it right out of the bag or just put it on a tomato or something. That's rough. Um, <laughs> I usually wind up breaking down and putting a little bit of mayonnaise on it. This is some low-fat mayonnaise that I grabbed out of our fridge this morning. It just tastes less fishy. Peanut butter and jelly blend really well. Like, they both taste good, but you put peanut butter and jelly together, they taste better than the individual components. Same thing with tuna and mayonnaise. Somehow, when we mix anything with mayo, we begin to call it a salad, right? Chicken salad tuna salad. It might be the only kind of salad I actually enjoy. But here's what I have learned, right? Not everything blends well together. For example, would anybody like, you know, a peanut butter and tuna sandwich? Same components, just kind of gross, right? A jelly and mayo sandwich. Blend it up, mash it together. Even though you like both of the ingredients, you wind up with something that is fairly distasteful. If this was youth group, I would have somebody come up and eat one right now. <laughs> right? This is what we do in youth group. <laughs> Welcome back to uh, our series, Cradle to Grave, where we've been following Jesus from Christmas Eve in his cradle to Jesus' cross on Good Friday, walking with him best as we can, even using maps and everything step by step. And, and here's what I hope you're learning along with me, and you might not like learning it. It is uncomfortable. Jesus, to our surprise now and to everyone's surprise back then, everyone's surprise, he is not only not who we expect him to be, he is often today, just like then, he's not even who we want him to be. Now, we're too far in or into the journey to look back. If you missed a step, please go back online and catch up because you really need to have a lot of it as base. But, but just going back to last week, we looked at what people began to say about Jesus in response to the way he was living and, and speaking about what, what, what the line he picked up from John the Baptist about a new king and a, a coming kingdom, which Jesus seemed to indicate didn't start when you die and go to heaven, but, but that he was inaugurating and initiating at least in part now, and that we should repent, turn away from walking towards the kingdoms of the world, and realign, reorient on ourselves, and move towards this new kingdom. Here's what the people were saying on the street, according to Peter, 
Mark wrote it down, the people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this? Okay, you just need to understand, th this message was really weird. What is this? And with authority, a new teaching. It was starting to become quite clear what Jesus was teaching was not something old. He wasn't hearkening back to yesteryear. He was teaching something brand new that they had literally never heard before. He was not doing what other rabbis had, had done. He was not interpreting the books of the Old Testament and how to live under the laws uh, and the prophets. He was teaching something very different. And he was teaching it with bold authority. Authority that he would then demonstrate and validate by, by performing miracles. It was almost as if this other kingdom he was talking about, he had the ability to have it break into this kingdom here on earth. Now, last week we saw three examples of this new kind of teaching. If you were here, Jesus, uh, the first one, they're right in a row because the authors of the scripture are trying to help us understand what Jesus is doing, how new and radical and different it was. At first, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. And lepers were not supposed to be in town. They were kept outside of the city gates, outside of the walls. He had broken all the laws which were in place to exclude him from being near to God. And Jesus heals them. He breaks all of the existing purity laws laid out in Leviticus relative to a leper. And then Jesus refuses to, to follow the ceremonial cleansing laws with it, which existed as if Jesus was saying, well, I don't need to be cleansed because when I touch the unclean, I don't become unclean. When I touch the unclean, they become clean. Well, that's different than every other religion on the face of the earth. Every other religion over time has said, you don't, you don't go buy things that make you unclean. They might make you unclean. Jesus assumes instead he has the power to, to make the unclean clean. And then, then he, he says he has the power to forgive sins, which only God can do, and he proves it right in front of them by reversing the curse of sin in our fallen worlds, in our, in our broken bodies. And he heals a paralytic, gets up off the mat, and walks out of the room. And finally, Jesus and his disciples, they are not playing by the existing rules that everyone in Jerusalem is living under, the rules of the Mosaic Covenant. He goes to a house full of sinners and, and tax collectors, and he eats with them. He and his disciples, they, they leave there and they ignore the, the calls to fast like the Pharisees do. New teachings, new authority. Leper, ostracized from town, and man, God brings them in. A paralytic, everybody assumed he was in that condition because he had done something to deserve it. He was getting, getting, you know, whatever sin he had committed resulted in this. Jesus heals him. And then he goes out and brings Matthew, a tax collector. He brings Matthew in to be, to be a follower, a, a follower that would become so well-known, one of the four Gospels is written by him. And to these points, last week we concluded with some very poignant words from Jesus. After he got do done doing all these things, you've got to imagine what pe people are like, what is, who is this guy? And so Jesus looks at them, they're like, well, how come you're not fasting? I mean, all the Pharisees are fasting. Why are you and your disciples not fasting? Jesus looks and goes, no one tears a piece of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new won't match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. They all understood what he was trying to say. 
There is good news. The new wine of inclusion and forgiveness and grace is being poured out and into new wineskins of the leper and the, the paralytic and the tax collector. But he finished his saying with a warning. He goes, everyone won't see it this way, quote, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new for they say the old is better. Welcome to the clash of kingdoms. The old, which so many of us want to hold on to, and new. And if things were uncomfortable for Jesus' audience then, and maybe, maybe uncomfortable for you and I this morning as you hear these messages, things were about to, if you love the old wine, things were about to get much worse. Jesus is now, if you remember, the paralytic ran out and told everybody what Jesus has done. Now the crowds are everywhere. And he's about to give the talk that would define, well, not just the rest of his ministry, it would define and differentiate his kingdom to come. You and I know it as the Sermon on the Mount, but, but mo what most scholars will tell you is that these were not just ideas housed within one sermon. It's not like Jesus said this once. Jesus um, gave uh, these ridiculously radical ideas over and over and over. They are at the core of his teaching. Most of the events, if you go back through and you look at the, the events recorded in the four Gospels of the New Testament, you can house most of those events in about six to eight months, other than, than kind of the annual rituals. And so what was Jesus doing the rest of the time, the rest of his three years of ministry? Most people believe, those scholars believe, that he was going around town to town preaching this very famous and quite controversial message. I heard it said this week regarding um, this sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, quote, the history of Christianity is a history of Christians trying to evade the Sermon on the Mount and avoid living according to its plain meaning. Because we like old wine. It, it seems to taste better to us. So here's the setup. Jesus gives this parable related to the old wine and, and new wineskins, and then he immediately does something to demonstrate, again offensively, what he's talking about. You see it in several of the gospel accounts. Jesus and his disciples are walking around on a Sabbath, picking grain and eating it. And he offends the Pharisees. You're not allowed to pick grain on the Sabbath. And then just almost as if to wipe their noses in it, then a man walks in and he's got kind of a crippled up hand and Jesus decides right there on the Sabbath, right in the face of the accusations that he's not honoring the Sabbath, which in first century Judaism, the Sabbath, I don't think you understand how big a deal the Sabbath was. The Sabbath was like representative of the Mosaic Covenant. The punishment for breaking the Sabbath was death. And Jesus seems to be ignoring all of these things. And again, not because he doesn't honor the old covenant, but because he continues to place, much to their frustration, people above protocols and relationships above religion and the lame above the law. And in this moment, this willful healing of this man on the Sabbath, I mean, this wasn't even an emergency. That guy could have waited until Sunday. Their Sabbath was Saturday. At this moment, this willful healing of this man on the Sabbath, it begins the end for Jesus. Luke writes that it was just at that moment when he did this, quote, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious, and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the beginning of the end. They begin to say, we're going to do to him what the law commands we do to him. He's a Sabbath breaker. He's a lawbreaker. Doesn't respect Moses, doesn't respect the temple. 
Now, this very famous sermon, it's bookended by two statements that I think help frame how controversial what Jesus is doing is. Um, it'll give you a sense. First, in regard to those first two stories about what Jesus is, is doing on the Sabbath and, and healing that man on the Sabbath, Mark tells us that, quote, when his family heard about this, about what Jesus was doing on the Sabbath, his family, this is Mary and, and, and Jesus' brothers, they went to take charge of him for they said, he's out of his mind. Can you imagine? This is just another reason why you should believe the scripture, right? If you were going to invent this story, this is, this is a detail that you would leave out, that his mother and his brothers came to him and said they thought he had lost his mind. He's crazy. That's what comes right before the Sermon on the Mount. You know what comes right after the Sermon on the Mount? When Jesus had finished saying these things in this sermon, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Amazed, that's the NIV translation. If some of you have different translations, a lot of times it's astonished. But the Greek word actually means he's out of his mind. It's bookended. This sermon is bookended by his mother saying he's out of his mind. And everybody that heard what he just said going, that guy's nuts. He's crazy. So what did he do? What did he say? Well, here's how he, he begins. Matthew lays out the scene. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to preach. He's still up in northern Israel. If you remember our map, he's in, in, in Galilee, the region by, by Lake Galilee, by the Sea of Galilee, where he had called his disciples. And, uh, and as I've been showing you this week by week, you can go to all these places. These are not fictional, made-up accounts. The New Testament is a historical document. This is a picture, right, that you're going to be looking at when it goes up here, of what's known as the Mount of Beatitudes. It is on the northwest shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's been revered uh, as the place where Jesus preached this sermon for over 1,600 years. There's a, a, a little chapel there now. Interesting fact, it's actually at a negative altitude. It's 200 meters above the Sea of Galilee, but it's 25 meters below sea level. It's actually one of the lowest summits in the world. So it's kind of interesting. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount at one of the lowest summits in the world. And it would make sense because it is right here at this summit, which is below sea level, crazy as that might sound, Jesus begins with some really crazy messaging about a new wine and a new kingdom. He goes, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now look, if you've been around the church, we romanticize these words, right? Oh, the Sermon on the Mount is so beautiful. We put them on pillows and stuff. These words, blessed are you who are poor, they reside on the pillows in the leather couches in the homes of the rich. Right? But these are upside-down truths for both the Jews in the first century Israel and for the impoverished Gentiles all around town. They had a worldview that's not much different than, than our, our worldview. That it's not the poor that are blessed by God. It's the rich that are blessed by God. Look, it's evidenced they're rich. Poverty then, right, just like now, is not a sign of God's blessings. Go home today and go through your social media posts. Nobody posts hashtag blessed next to their shelter address or their 2002 Civic. Right? Riches then and now were signs of God's blessings, not poverty. 
And I mean, think about it. His audience is full of, of first century Jewish people. The patriarchs that they revered and honored were all wealthy. Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, King David, Solomon, the richest man who had ever lived. Now, this was good news for the poor. They'd been taught all their lives, just like maybe you've been taught that, well, if you're poor, it's because God, God's not with you. He, he could have helped you out, but he's chosen not to. He's not blessing you. Suddenly, the poor are being told, no, 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 you're, you're not left out of the kingdom of God. You haven't been passed by. But let's be honest. Can we be honest? Wouldn't they have rather had a check? Right? This is great, Jesus, but I'm still poor. Yet Jesus, time and time again, in describing this kingdom of his, in this message, he would describe it always as backwards and upside down. In the kingdoms of the world, and from everything that the religion had taught them. You've heard these teachings, but we don't take them seriously. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. It's all upside down. It's all backwards. It's all not the way we think it should be. How about this one? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. We were taught, as they were taught, right, to hunger and thirst for power and for prestige and, 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 and our, our dream schools and our dream jobs and a hot spouse and comfort and, and, and barns of, of plenty. It wasn't just physical hunger, but blessed are those who hunger for what is right and what is just and good. That hunger literally like you do physically after you've missed a few meals, that hunger for, for equity that is due the poor and the marginalized and the overlooked and the broken and the rejected. Again, this is why I always am like, these Guatemala meetings should just be full of people. Blessed are you who hunger for now, for you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mean, he keeps going on. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. I mean, they had been taught, like we've been taught, that mercy and the law don't mix. You can't go soft on things. This is why you don't heal people on the Sabbath. The law takes priority over people. They've been taught, like we've been taught, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You get what you do. If you wanted to know what you were doing, it was simple. You just went back to the books of the law and the prophets. You went back to, to Exodus and Leviticus, and you looked up what, what violation had taken place under those 600-plus rules, and it prescribed what the penalty due was. How about this one? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. Pure in heart? Nobody in first century Israel cared about pure in heart. They believed that the, what the law prescribed was merely, merely related to an outside, an external purity. There were laws that you followed which would make you pure. There were ceremonial cleanings and washings. An outward purity. Whatever you do, you don't risk an outward purity by mixing with impure things. This is what got Jesus in trouble. Or more importantly, you don't, you don't go near unclean people and Gentiles and tax collectors and lepers. They thought, and some, some of you know this, that God was only concerned with the outside of the cup. Jesus would later address that. That, that, that really it was just a kingdom of external purification. Nothing to do with the heart or, or transformation or change, but keeping of the law. You keep the law. And then imagine how offensive this is. If you're sitting there then, or, or maybe, listen, please hear this. You're sitting in Mendham, New Jersey, 
But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you're going to go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you're going to mourn and weep. Isn't, it, isn't the Sermon on the Mount beautiful? I just, it's so comforting for rich people like me. I mean, is he serious? This is why everybody's going, this dude's whacked. It is the complete inversion of both a worldview and of their religion. It was true and shocking then, and I would argue if you take Jesus seriously, it's still true and it's still shocking. And yet he refuses to stop. He keeps going. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Which to his first century Jewish audience seems crazy. Salt of the earth, light of the world. We've got books and books that tell us how to separate ourselves from the world. We don't eat like them. We don't, we don't dress like them. We cross on the other side of the road to avoid the rest of the world. We, we do our hair a certain way. We wear our clothes a certain way. It's right there in Leviticus. We don't, we don't intermarry with them. It's right there in Leviticus. We're the chosen people. We are God's holy people. We're not interested in, in all of these other people glorifying our God. You know what we're interested in our God doing is smiting all of these other people. We would like to get them out of our country, specifically for Jesus. The reason everybody was so hopeful momentarily for Jesus was they thought he was going to come and throw all the Roman occupiers out so they could set the kingdom aright. We can restore Israel to its rightful place of power and dominance on the world stage. They had to be hearing this going, Jesus, it almost sounds like you want us to care for our enemies. To which Jesus would shortly say, no, I don't want you to care for your enemies. I want you to love them. And it's at this point, now, there's, there's tension in the air. Feathers are, are getting ruffled. Jesus seems to be upending everything. The worldviews, everything that they had been taught since they were children, hundreds and hundreds of years of, of, of a sacrificial system and a temple system and a religious system, rabbis, You'll see Jesus is very soon going to claim authority over all of their teachings. And it's, this, it's at this point that Jesus stops. I'm guessing he's reading the room, and he looks around, and he, he, he begins to address what he knows they have to be thinking. He goes, before I go any further, listen, do not think that I have come to abolish the laws of the prophets. The law and the prophets is what the, the first century Jewish audience would have perceived or conceived their Old Testament to be. So Jesus is essentially saying, don't think I've come to abolish the, the Old Testament for you. Why did he have to say this? Because this is what they thought he was doing. They're starting to go, holy smokes, this guy thinks he's bigger than Moses. So he keeps going. He goes, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And, and so I want to pause here. And let this story intersect with my story and maybe your story. I don't know your faith story and I don't want to presume anything about it, but I will tell you mine. If I were to boil down Christianity the way it was handed to me, right? I was kind of a kid that, that didn't have a lot of theological training growing up, but this was what was, was Christianity as it was explained to me most of my life. And then even after I became a Christian, it just got even worse, actually. Here's what it was. Believe in Jesus and obey the Ten Commandments, and if you're a good person, you'll go to heaven. That was Christianity. 
believe in Jesus, obey the commandments, be a good person, do those three things, and you're in. Now, maybe that's what you've been taught, too. And it makes perfect sense that it would be. What's the first thing? A person comes to the faith, what's the first thing we give them? We give them a Bible, right? And, and, and it's got an Old Testament and a New Testament, and the Old Testament is filled with all of these commands. It's mostly about things that I have to do or I'm in trouble. And the New Testament is all stories of Jesus, and so it seems at first blush like, okay, here's what you got to do. you got to obey these commands, and you got to believe in Jesus, and if you're a good person, you'll go to heaven. Makes perfect sense. Until it doesn't. For me, and maybe for you, and maybe for many of us, Christianity becomes a blend of two covenants. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the laws and the prophets, and the New Testament, this good news that Jesus was speaking about, this kingdom. But what Jesus is doing here quite famously, and he had just said the exact same thing in different words with wine and wineskins, right, is that the old and the new, just like tuna and peanut butter, if you will, they don't blend well together. In fact, if you try to put them together, what you're going to get is honestly quite distasteful. So distasteful that if this is the message you keep taking out to a hurting and broken and dying world, people, even though they're hungry, will take a look at it and go, thanks, but no thanks. It doesn't sound very good. What Jesus was saying to his first century audience and to his 21st century audience now is that the old covenant is over. It is done. The assignment has been completed. The book is now closed. It's completed history. The old covenant, and it, it was an if-then covenant, and it was a covenant between God and a nation, its purposes come to an end. Everything that was required of it has been, been brought to completion in Jesus and by Jesus. You cannot pull it forward. There is no Jesus and. There is no Jesus plus. Going forward, we don't obey commands. We follow Jesus. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament is over. He goes on. I know this might, for some of you, this is like, what? And this is the way it was for me when I first started understanding it. He goes on, for I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. And so for one second, they're like, okay, good. We thought he had really lost it. But see, he's saying, he's saying that, that nothing's going to change, right? Our law is still going to be here. Because for them, the law was everything. It was the deal God had set up with Moses. The law was their identity. It was what made Jews Jews. It's what, what made them God's holy people. The law was their identity. It, it was what justified them. It was what identified them. It set, it set apart their worldview. It was full of their customs and, and their holidays and, and their civil laws. It told them how to dress and what to eat and how to worship and how to relate. And so for just one second, they're going, oh, good, it's not going to disappear until, until the earth disappears. And, and maybe when you've read Jesus say that, if you've ever heard that in the scripture, you thought, you thought oh, okay, until heaven and earth disappear. So, so the law is still there. I'm still subject to everything in the law. But Jesus finished that statement with the word until. None of it will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now maybe you, you hear that and you think, okay, 
So they're, what does that mean? Are they, in, they, they, is the law, you know, do we live under the law until the end of time, until Jesus comes back? Which, if you were introduced to Christianity as a bad blend, right, that kind of understanding makes sense until you read John's description regarding Jesus' final moments on the cross. I don't know if anybody's ever shown you this before. Here's what John says. After this, Jesus had just given uh, John charge of his mother Mary to take care of his mother Mary. After doing that, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. What was accomplished? Everything. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. What did Jesus come to do? Not to abolish, but to, to fulfill them. He said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his, his spirit. What is finished? The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, all of the things that you believe hold sway over you. It's gone, it's done, it has, it has, <laughs> it, it has no dominion over you anymore. You, you'll see this language soon, are free from it and of it. The book was closed. The ceremonial laws, the, the temple system, the dietary laws, the puritary laws, the system of priests and sacrifices, all of it, not abolished. We'll get into it more next week, right? Don't miss next week. All of it fulfilled and completed and now closed. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant had a shelf life, and it was now expired. It was no longer valid, nor the way to God. And the truth is, there's entire, the New Testament, if you read the New Testament beyond the four Gospels, you'll see most books address two things. Number one, church is fighting. Number two, what are they fighting about? This concept. How much the law applies to them. It's the story of most, most of the New Testament. Everything has been accomplished. The old covenant has, has gone away. In fact, the truth is the very prophets operating within the old covenant had known it all along. Here's from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. This was part of the law and the prophets. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, the Mosaic one, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. There is a new covenant, a far better one, a much superior one. This is specifically talking about the Ten Commandments, not written on tablets of stone, but a covenant of the heart and the mind and the conscious. We're going to see that next week. Don't, mix, don't miss next week. Where Jesus, a claim, a, you'll see claiming authority over Moses, the lawgiver, over and over. He keeps right after he explains this. Here's what he goes into next, over and over. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. That was the old. I'm, the covenant I'm bringing you is better and superior. I'm telling you this. He moves the commands from stone tablets to our hearts and our minds. But let me close today with just, just th this thought. 
the Apostle Paul, he, he, he would go on to write almost all of the books after the four Gospels, right? The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee before he met Jesus. He loved the law and the prophets. He was schooled in the law and the prophets. It was, what, it was where he made his, his, his work and his identity. Here's how he would describe coming to understand this news. Quote, now if the ministry that bought death, that's how Paul is describing the Old Testament, that's how he's describing the old ministry that he had given his life to. He's calling, and it's specifically, which was engraved in letters on stone. You know what was engraved on letters of stone? The Ten Commandments. He's referring to the Ten Commandments. Don't shoot the messenger, right? He's referring to the Ten Commandments as the ministry of death, which was engraved in letters on stone. If that came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, if you remember the story when Moses came down from the mountain, he came down with his face glowing from meeting with God. Transitory though it was, transitional, it's no longer in place. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with their surpassing glory. This is ridiculously good news if you get this. Why does it matter? For lots and lots of reasons. Because when you combine covenants, they taste bad. This is why so many of our kids are walking away from the faith, because they got told, here's what Christianity means, right? You, you, you believe in Jesus, and you obey the commands, and if you're a good person, you're going to go to heaven. This might be why maybe you're thinking about walking away from faith, because of all the legalism and judgmentalism of Christians. Maybe you were introduced to, to the Jesus plus model like I was. In fact, I'll tell you, when I actually became a Christian then and understood who Jesus was, the first question I had was like many, many of the first questions you all had, well, what do I do now? And you know what the answer was? Read the Bible. Where should I start? Well, at the beginning, which gets very confusing, right? And then, and then, and then well, you got you to be good now. And friends, this is where all this stuff comes from. Like when I first became a Christian, it was like, okay, if you thought you were good before, well, now that you're a follower of Jesus, now you really need to be good because now you're a follower of Jesus. And so, so you know, no drinking, no dancing, no smoking, no movies, all that stuff comes from a bad blend, a toxic blend of two covenants, one dead, one alive. It is a ministry of death. This is not Christianity. You should walk away from the bad blend, but what if you walked away from religion and you walked towards a new king and a new kingdom and, it, and you really started to go, I think there's good news over there. Maybe you've been told Christians are hypocrites because we don't follow everything in the Bible. And people, you know, your kid goes off to college and a professor shows them lots of stuff in the Bible that Christians don't do. And so, so you've been chastised that you pick and you choose what it is you believe. You see, if you try to live by the blend, that's true. Maybe growing up, the preacher told you, if the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And the Bible seems to say lots of things that we don't do anymore or make no sense. And, and I don't do most of it anyway. So maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm just a hypocrite. True. Maybe my friends are right. Maybe my professor has convinced me. I mean, it is true. The blend actually makes no sense. 
But if you understand that the old covenant, almost in the fashion of a cocoon, has birthed this new one, and what's old needs to be left behind, that, that makes sense now. Because that book is closed. That score has been settled. You don't have to keep trying to pull it forward. I mean, this truth, this understanding, it impacts everyone in the room. If you get it, right? If you get it, for those of you that feel far from God, please understand, right? You probably feel far from God because you, you feel like you can't do it. You can't be the shiny, happy Christian person. You can't live up to all of the laws and the commands and the expectations. And, and so you're like, ah, I don't know. I have good news for you. You're not subject to those laws. Jesus set you free from them. In fact, I have even better news. Jesus lived up to them for you. You don't have to. Furthermore, you can. You can. One of the purposes of the law was actually to convict and convince you that you can't live up to it, that you need grace. Our relationship with God is no longer through the law. It is through Christ and his righteousness, not ours. Because of Christ, God actually sees you. If you're, if you're feeling distant from God because you can't keep the law, I have good news for you. God sees you much different than you see yourself. Now, for those of you like me that can get, you know, if you're a church person, we can get caught up in, in the bad blend a lot. The Jesus plus or Jesus and type of faith. Here's what Paul would tell you, and, and Paul was always fighting with Jesus plus people. Christ made us free. Stay that way. Do not get chained all over again in the law, and it's kind of religious worship. Jesus sets us free, but for some reason, and I don't know why, I would love to see a psychological study on this, for some reason we love the law. We love it. And if you keep blending, you will not only miss Jesus, you will miss the abundant life of freedom he gave to give you, and you will most likely suffer the side effects of the blend. Did you know the side effects of the blend exists? It's written right there on the back of the tuna if you read carefully. If you blend this with peanut butter, you might become a self-righteous, judgmental jerk. Look closely next time. You wind up becoming a person that just keeps trying to understand why pe people don't like you. Why don't, I don't understand why people don't like tuna and peanut butter. You somehow convinced yourself it was good, even though inside you knew you were dying. Inside you knew you couldn't do it or keep it. Well, if the Old Testament is closed and we're dead to the law, now what? Great question, right? Because usually the answer is, well, go obey the commands and be good. All right, they're already fulfilled on your part. Well, now what? How do we live? Can we just do anything? Should we? I mean, is anarchy just rule? Is that it? Like, you know, the chains are off. If our message isn't Jesus and be good, then what is our message? All of that is for next week. Don't miss next week. In the meantime, I hope you can sense a little bit of a a different kingdom being born. 
Live in the freedom of Christ that he died to give you. Live under the grace of God. If the old... Testament, if the old covenant could be summed up in a word, it would be due. The new covenant would be summed up in a word this way, done. Feel the grace and the joy and the peace and the rest. Enjoy the glory of the new covenant. And whatever you do, watch out. Don't eat and don't offer bad blends. Let's stand and close this song.